Good morning, church. You may be seated. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. As we begin a new year, we have started a new series called Beginnings. And in this series, we are looking at the beginning of everything. Genesis 1 and 2 tells the story of the world and how everything in it came to be. Last week, Corey helped us look at the beginning of creation, and he spoke about the importance of beginning everything around our relationship with God. And now the purpose of every human life and endeavor begins with God because he is the one that is before all things. He is the one that is behind all things. This week, we're going to talk about the beginning of humanity, in particular, the beginning of human identity. Identity is one sense of self, the characteristics by which we are recognized or known by others. It's what Mark meant in the video when he said he wanted to be himself. Identity is what makes you, you. It's what makes me, me, and what makes us, us. And so we're going to look to the scriptures today to find out what God has to say about who we are. So let's pray together as we approach uh, the word of God. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. There's no one like you. There are no gods before you. And we confess that we need a word from you today about who we are and about who you are. And so we ask that you would speak. By the power of your spirit, you would reveal to us the truths of God and that you would be good and merciful to us as you do so. In Jesus' name, amen. You can read the scriptures with me today uh, from Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and Genesis 2, 25. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The word of the Lord. Well, the Mandu family has been asking a lot of identity questions over the last couple months. As we uproot ourselves from the only job I've ever known, uh, in the only city our family's ever known, the only home the only neighborhood, the only church that our kids have ever known. And we moved to this crazy place called Richmond. Uh, One of the first experiences we had was actually right here on the third pew. It was during our first weekend worshiping together at third as a family. And during the greeting of peace, my son Fisher uh, pointed to my wife's legs and said, Mommy, what are those? And Sue looked down and then looked back at Fisher and said, Those are pantyhose. And uh, Fisher was confused because in his seven years of being a human, he had never seen his mother wear pantyhose. (laughs) And so my wife said, in his confusion, uh, Fisher goes, uh, why, mommy? (laughs) And Sue's response is, because I'm Presbyterian now. (laughs) I don't know what that means about Sue. I don't know what that means uh, about us as a family. I'm Presbyterian now. I, I tried to talk to Fisher about it a little bit the other day because we told the story in our house and uh, during uh, bedtime liturgy, he, he, he brought it up and, 
he asked a couple of great questions about, like, did we believe different things before? And I was like, no, actually, we believe all the same things that we, we believe now. And I did a horrible job of that conversation. I think, I think his impression of what it means to be a Presbyterian is that you wear pantyhose and you like meetings. Uh, I think that's the sum total there. I hope that's not on my ordination exam, Ed. Make sure that doesn't get in there. Um, it is so difficult, isn't it, to capture the complexity of a human being's identity, their, their self, who they are, in just a word, even a word as powerful as Presbyterian, right? How do you do something like that? Who, who am I? What makes me, me? I am white. Okay, yeah, that's a huge part of who I am, my ethnicity, my culture. Substantial. Is that all that who I am? I am a man. Man. <laughs> I am a man. Is, is, that's a significant part of, of who I am. Is that all of who I am? I grew up in Clarksville, Virginia. What's it say about me? I love the New York Giants. What does that say about me? Not much this year. <laughs> I'm a pastor, a husband, I'm a dad. I'm, I'm one who's lost two mothers to cancer. These are all parts of who I am, but, but are, they, are they me? Are they fully who I am? I have a magnificent beard. It's true. What does it say about me? In Richmond, it doesn't say much because they're everywhere. <laughs> Thankfully, we have the Word of God to speak into a topic like this, one that is so uh, difficult to understand and yet important to press into. And I believe that here in the Scriptures, God captures the complexity of what it means to be human and who we are. So we're not going to be able to dive in and talk about all of the elements in the text today, but uh, what we will do is this. We're going to use three questions as a framework to, uh, to guide us during our, our time together as we discover um, what God wants us to learn about human identity. The first question is this. What's the origin of human identity? And the text tells us that human beings are made in the image of God, that we are, we are made like God, by God, for God, and for the flourishing of creation. How are we like God? There are at least two elements. I'm just going to touch on them briefly because they're going to uh, have more prominent roles probably in the next couple of weeks as we look at the beginning of community or the beginning of work. But there are these two elements. First, humans are communal. The text starts off with this statement, let us, that is a statement of plurality, make them, that's a statement of plurality. When the text talks about the image of God, in, in our image, we will make them male and female. He created them. In our spiritual DNA as human beings is this desire for community. And even the image of God isn't fully expressed just by oneself, not just by a man or a woman, but together, men and women fully express God's nature. We express who he is. We're, we're communal. Second is that we're embodied creature. Did you know that the human beings are the only things in, in cre the creation narrative that are made from other stuff? All of the rest of creation is made ex nihilo, out of nothing. God speaks it and it comes into existence. But when he makes human beings, he grabs some dirt and he breathes into it his spirit of life. And we live. We, we are embodied Creatures. We have the, the beautiful 
limitations of uh, biological, physical existence. And there are at least four elements in the first page of your Bible that, that, that define what it means to be an embodied creature. They are gender and sexuality. They are uh, ethnicity and culture. These four aspects, they're, they're part of what it means to be an embodied creature, to have a physicality in the world. When Jesus put on flesh, we just finished Advent, and we talked about how he took on flesh. He took on all four of these things. He took on gender and sexuality. He took on ethnicity and culture. They're, they're an important part of what it means to be human. But what our text raises to central importance, what, what comes center stage in it is this, that, that, that we are created to be like God, and we are like God in our being and our doing. In our power and in our personhood, we are like the creator. Let's talk about power first. This is where the verse starts. Let us, and the reason for making man in his own image is for rule. We are given dominion, power, influence over the created order. We actually partner with God uh, in the flourishing of creation. We're extending his good reign to the fish and the birds and the animals. In our power, we're like God. In our personhood, we are like God. God imparts to us our sense of identity. Only human beings amongst the animal kingdom understand ourselves as selves. Do we have an identity? And the Bible tells us that the very first human beings, they found their personhood, their identities, their sense of self in the God who loved them and the God who made them. And this was so beautiful. This God-centered self that the, the author of Genesis could only describe it in these words. The man and woman were naked and they knew no shame. Think about that. 100% transparent. 100% exposed and vulnerable. No fear. None at all. This is the origin of human identity, that we are like God, made by God, for God, and for the flourishing of creation. This means at least two things for us. It means a lot of things, but it means at least two things. First, every human being has intrinsic value and worth because they bear in their souls the image of God. Nick Waltersdorf puts it this way, to be human is to be an icon of God. Image bearing is not something one can lose. Until death, the worth of every human abides. Second, human identity does not exist apart from God. It cannot be manufactured. Your identity, yourself, is bestowed. It's given to you. It is derived from the one who made you. And so we as humans, we, we will find our identities in either God or something other than God. Our value Please hear me, church. Our value, it does not come in our productivity to the state. It does not come to our conforming to cultural norms. It does not come from our wealth, our beauty, our influence, our fame. It comes from God. This is the origin of the self. This is God's design for human identity. 
So if that's the origin, how did we end up here? (laughs) What happened next in the story of humanity's beginning? We find that Adam and Eve reject God. In fact, the text tells us that they try to be like a God apart from God. Isn't that crazy? The one thing they already had, God-likeness, is what Satan offered them. They were already like God, but they sought to be like him apart from God. So they they reject this God-centered existence and begin instead a self-centered existence. And what happened, the scriptures say, that's when sin entered the world. And these four relationships that, that, that we're talking about over the next four weeks, self, our relationship with God, self, others in creation, all four of these relationships became corrupted when sin entered the world. Now, how did sin's corruption affect the human identity, our sense of self? We find these words in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But as the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. These verses... The very moment when shame enters the human story. Did you catch the contrast? Naked and not ashamed to naked, afraid of God, afraid of each other, hiding. You can't understate what is happening to Adam and Eve in these verses. Their entire experience of human personhood is fragmenting. They are, in front of our eyes, created for glory and flourishing. They are becoming unlike God. This is what shame does to human identity. This is what shame does to you, and this is what it does to me. My favorite definition of of shame is by Brene Brown. And she says uh, this, that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and unworthy of belonging. Shame is not the idea you've done something wrong, that's guilt. Shame is that, 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 that you are wrong. There's something wrong with you. And it has these two poles This idea that we are unworthy of love and this idea that we're unworthy of belonging. And shame can be a confusing topic to understand. When I was on staff at Grace Chapel, large church in New England during seminary, there was a story that I heard about a family in the church that changed the way that I would think of shame. I I couldn't really tell the difference back then between what it meant to be embarrassed, what it meant to be guilty, what it meant to be ashamed until I heard this story. The children of two prominent families in the church had begun dating in college, the son of one, the daughter of the other, and eventually they got engaged. Now, even though they only had about six months left before they were going to be married, the couple decided, you know, six months is just too long to wait. We love each other, but we're going to be married anyway. And so they chose a weekend 
when his parents would be away on a business trip. The weekend arrived, and the young couple helped the parents pack for the trip, leave for the trip, and as soon as the parents' car was out of sight, they ran upstairs to the third floor. Ten minutes later, phone call rings. Son picks up the phone. It's his father. Now, he was going to a business meeting in Chicago, and so he had forgotten the documents that he needed for the meeting when he got there. So he asked the son, I need you to run all the way downstairs to the basement. I need you to fax the papers ahead for me so they're waiting for me when I get there. Son said, okay, hangs up the phone, and he picks up his fiance and descends down three flights of stairs running, naked as the day they were born, all the way down to the basement office. When they got there, it was dark. They didn't think anything of it. But when they step across the threshold, the lights get turned on. And it was a surprise engagement party. <laughs> this is a true story. I'm just going to let that sit and do its work in us for a minute. Now, if you are married and that happens to you, you are embarrassed. Like that is a story that gets told at every family reunion for the rest of all time. But your sense of belonging is not threatened. Your ability to give and receive love or be an object of love, that's not threatened. This couple was engaged. How could they belong in that community anymore? How how could they believe that they'd be loved? It shattered and fragmented who they were. They felt great shame. I want you guys to fix in your mind what's your what's your moment of great shame? It's it's either something that was done to you or something that you've done to someone else or something that you failed to do, and it sits in your soul like a cancer. It keeps you from believing God can love you. It keeps you, that you believing that you could truly belong. If they knew everything about me, they would kick me out. The truth is, brothers and sisters, if, if the love of Jesus does not find you in that place, it has not found you. Shame has fragmented and captured the self. And when confronted with shame, Adam and Eve, they hid. They hid from one another. They hid from God. And that's what we've been doing ever since. We, we, we take off the true self. We put on the false self. And we erect masks and walls. And we tell stories about ourselves that we believe. I want to look a little bit deeper into how, how shame makes us hide. Now, you might vacillate between um, the, the two things that we're going to talk about next. But most people they tend to, like, camp in one of them. Um, the, the first is this. Shame sometimes manifests itself in us as self-hatred. Now, this is the idea that I am unworthy of love. At the core of self-hatred is the belief that there is nothing lovable about you. The stories you tell yourself, the stories that define you, they erode your sense of worth as an object of love. And there is nothing that you can do. You can never be pretty enough, strong enough, masculine enough, feminine enough, healthy enough. You can never have any amount of sobriety. You can never be a good enough mother, dad, father, son, daughter. 
to allow yourself to be beloved. One of the worst things about self-hatred is that some of those embodiments I talked about earlier that were a human blessing, they become the sources of our greatest shame. Our sexuality, our gender, our ethnicity, our culture, become places of hatred and not love and flourishing. This is me. I'm a, I, I struggle with self-hatred more than I do uh, self-aggrandizement, which is our second so some of us, uh, shame manifests as self-hatred. Some of us, it's self-aggrandizement, self-aggrandizement which also means self-importance. And, and it's really rooted in this idea that you are unworthy of belonging. Now, someone who so- struggles with self-hatred, I didn't know people like this exist. So what I thought happened when shame hit your life is that you just buried yourself in a bucket of ice cream or Netflix or you like cried yourself asleep in a dark room by yourself. <laughs> you, know, something, you know, hashtag Derek things, that kind of stuff. I didn't know that when people feel shame, some of them get stuff done. Like some of them start working and they work hard. It's exhausting to watch them. At the core of self-aggrandizement is this belief that you're unworthy of belonging and all of your activity and your running is, is you saying to yourself in the world and to God, I will show you I belong. I'll prove to you. I'll earn it. Two sides of the same coin, shame destroying the self. I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to speak to some of the most important Christian business leaders in uh, Charlottesville. And I was talking to them about how shame affects us in our leadership. And so uh, after I described in detail my struggle with shame over the years and how it um, affected my ability to lead students and to develop staff this one man spoke up. Now, he was the most influential guy in the room, like, completely. <laughs> and so it was a little bit of a surprise. And he was processing real time. Like, it, it was very, I mean, we were all aware that, like, he's just realizing this about himself right now. And this is what he said. He said, Derek, what you've been doing with self-hatred, I have been doing with success since I was 12 years old. And he went on to list in specific detail all of the things that made him better than the rest of us. He wasn't a jerk. He just was being honest. After a while, he was waiting for a response from from me. And uh, I, I knew him, and so I had enough of a friendship with him to say, so how is that going for you at 61 years of age? Not very well, he said. Somebody else in the room said, well, maybe it's time to stop. And I will never forget this. Tears just started flooding from his eyes. And he said, I don't know how. That is what shame does to human identity. It erodes our ability to believe that we are objects of love or that we belong with God or others. It tries to steal and erase the image of God in us. It is evil, and it is an enemy of the gospel. So what is the hope, then, for human identity? If ourselves are fragmented, 
by shame. We find these words in Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The, the opposite of guilt is, is innocence. Do you know what the opposite of shame is in Scripture? It is not self-confidence. It's not self-acceptance. The opposite of, of, of shame in Scripture is glory. If you seek self-acceptance, if you seek self-confidence, you will not defeat shame. What you need is you need to be given the glory that was lost to you in the fall. And that's what this text tells us happened. There was one other human being who was naked and not ashamed. It was not the first Adam. It was the second. And he hung there for you and for me, transparent, exposed. And the scriptures tell us that in that moment, what Jesus did is that he stole from us our shame. And as you die with him, and as you are raised with him, he imparts to you his glory. In Christ, you are loved, not just as a creation who bears his image, you are loved as a child. You're no longer a slave to sin or fear. In Christ, you belong. You are adopted children with the full rights of Jesus' sonship. His spirit lives in you. In Christ, you are restored to the work of flourishing creation. If you are children, then heirs of God, heirs with Christ, you've been restored to your reign. Not by trying to find your way back to Eden, but by finding yourself in Christ, who is the new humanity. Amen? Amen. This is our truest self with our whole beings, with our whole personhood. We are children of the living God, called to flourish and to help the world around us flourish in him. This is the good news. Hear this, church. You cannot be loved any more than Jesus is loved by the Father. This text says that love is yours. You cannot belong any more than Jesus Christ belongs to the Father. This text tells us that belonging is yours. This is the hope of human identity. Your shame has been swallowed up in his glory. Amen. Amen. So how do we respond? I'm going to three quick things. How do we respond? How do you respond to something this glorious? Uh, I'll try to be helpful. First, I want to talk about the renewal of our minds. Be committed to the renewal of your minds. We live and die for ideas. The stories that shape us, they become the ideas we wrap our lives around, and we need new stories. And so we have a couple of opportunities that are coming up. Uh, Kurt Thompson and 
Uh, Andy Crouch will be here. Kurt Thompson wrote the book Soul of Shame. Andy, Andy uh, Crouch will be coming talking about the TechWise family. Uh, I know both of these men. I can call them friends. And I will tell you this. They, they're real deal when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> Kurt Thompson, please, just make time. When you hear uh, uh, the dates of when we're having him, please, just make time in your schedule. Come and submit yourself to learn more about what it means to wrestle with shame and to know that your identity is in Christ. Uh, Andy Crouch will be here uh, and he'll be talking with us about how technology shapes our understanding of who we are, especially in our families. These are two incredible opportunities uh, to, to pursue uh, submitting your identity to Jesus and learn about more, more what that looks like. And the second is this. Uh, you, we commit uh, to the renewal of our minds. Second, repent and believe. I don't know what else to say other than to repent and believe to the, to the good news of the gospel like this. Repent and believe what the gospel says about your identity. You can't be better people. There's always someone that's more beautiful, more accomplished, more wealthy. There always is. You cannot become a better person, but you can become a new one. You can become the new creation that God has intended you to be. Repentance is that great act of truth-telling. Colossians 3 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are about to enter into worship. And I want you to take it as an opportunity to repent. I want you to fix in your mind, what is that false self? What, is it practice? what are its practices? I'm going to tell you mine. When I enter into moments like this, this is what I say. This is what I'm going to say in 30 seconds or in uh, five minutes. I reject the false self that I was born evil and am not worthy of love. I don't need to avoid painful things in my life anymore. I am safe because I'm hid in Christ with God. I put on the new self as his beloved son. Now, I believe that message because that's what my mom told me most of my life. It's the false self that I always turn to. What's yours? And would you be willing to believe that you can put that old self off and take on the new self that is Jesus and to walk in that truth today? So when we, when we sing, I want you to repent because <laughs> that's our response to the good news. Finally, we need a higher honesty. So we need to renew our minds. Um, uh, we need to repent and believe what the gospel says about our identities, but we need a higher honesty. One of my favorite podcasts is called Terrible Thank You for Asking. Have you heard this podcast? Uh, it's great. It's, it's a response to like what she wishes she could say when someone asks, how are you doing? <laughs> Terrible, thank you for asking. Um, well, see, you know, Corey mentioned this earlier. We have to be honest about our places of darkness. We have to. If we are going to keep shame from rooting out the gospel in us, we have got to create authentic, transparent communities. We need places where we can share our whole self. This is the goal for parish groups. We want them to be places where you can be known. You can be yourself. Whether you're in a parish group or not, we need to become a community, a church, that bears our wounds with one another. And so when you experience shame, what I want you to do 
is to name it, is to identify what it is that you're feeling and what is it rooted in. For me, it's almost always around fatherhood and it's almost always around respect and safety. And when you feel that shame, what I want you to do is I want you to reach out to one person that you trust and I want you to tell them the story of what you feel. And you know what you will find? You will find that shame loses its power because it cannot exist in the light. Its whole power is in isolating and causing us to hide from one another. And if someone shares the shame, their shame story with you, do not act surprised. Put on a poker face. Really, what you need is just to empathize, to love them, receive their story. And you know what you're going to do? You are going to be one, one part of a chain of experiences that will they will begin to believe that maybe God does love them and maybe they do belong. We need a higher honesty. So here's how I want to conclude. This is, this is good news. Our origin of human identity is, is in that we are image bearers. Shame destroys, tries to destroy, it distorts the image of God in us, but we are restored, not just to the images, image bearers as created things, but we image God in the world as children. The greatest sense of love and belonging that we can. And so as, as we conclude, I just, I just I want to fix this in your thought. In our, in our old house, when you would come, I'm never going to see this house again. That's, that's sad, but it's okay. <laughs> in our old house, you would come into our house and you would see the stairs. And my wife's an artist, and so she wrote these words. And it was, it was a testimony. It was something so that as a family, we would fix ourselves on the truth of who we were. And on those steps, you would see these words. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. At the beginning of this new year, church, in Christ, shame has been swallowed up by glory. And you have been restored to your true selves. We bear his image, not as creations, but as children. We are the new humanity. Amen.